You're listening to Warwick Radio Online. The voice of Warwick, Rhode Island. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Warwick Life on Warwick Radio. My name is Scott Nerney. I grew up in Warwick and have been a homeowner for over 30 years in our lovely city. My goal with this podcast is to highlight what is special about Warwick and how you can get the most from our seaside community. This podcast is being presented by the Warwick Center for the Arts, located next to Warwick City Hall, where amazing artists showcase their artwork year-round in their beautiful gallery, in addition to many exciting classes for children and adults. Before I introduce our guest, I wanted to mention, if you have an idea for a guest, subject matter, comment or question on Warwick Life, drop us a line at warwicklife at gmail.com. I'd like to welcome back our guest today, Ann Hulse, President and Curator, and Paul Miller, Director of the Clouds Hill Museum in Warwick. I feel in our first conversation we barely scratched the surface of your incredible family history, the museum home, and estate features. Thank you for coming back into the studio to discuss this with our audience today. Welcome back. Well, thank, thank you, Scott. Scott. It's, it's very nice of you to be willing to have us back. Here, here. <laughs> Thanks, and um, thank you for supporting our podcast um, Clouds Hill is a fantastic museum, and I really encourage people to go there and take a look. Now that the holiday rush is over, I think there's a little more time on people's plates as well. And don't forget, if you'd like to follow along with all of this information, it's cloudshill.org on the web. And we talked a little bit about what it was like growing up uh, as a child in the home, and, and since then... Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be a young girl on an estate that big? Well, I grew up, um, I was an only child, so unfortunately, I had to be blamed for everything because I was obviously the one that did it. Well, and I was too, <laughs> so I took all that blame. Absolutely. But I was lucky because my grandparents were still alive until I was about 10 and were living in the house. And of course, I kind of was wrapped around or oh, my grandfather was kind of wrapped around my little finger. There was a five-pound box of chocolates that came back from Providence every Friday. <laughs> but as a child, uh, being very young, um, it actually was kind of odd because all of my friends thought it was extremely peculiar for somebody to be living in a house of that size. And they really didn't want to come and not spend the night anyway. They'd come for the afternoon, but nobody wanted to, there were no sleepovers because that was the haunted house. <laughs> I, I didn't get that feeling while I was there, but I could see as a small kid with three huge floors and kind of a separate back half for servants, it, it could kind of feel that way, I guess. It got better, though, as I got older. My father built us a wonderful toboggan slide that started right up next to the house and went all the way down to Post Road. So in the wintertime, we had a lot of friends around sliding on the hill, and especially because he had one of the first ski mobiles in Rhode Island, and he towed us all back up the hill so we didn't have to walk up. Well, you know, when I drove to the property the first time, I, I, and in fact, I think I mentioned this to Paul, when I was coming up the drive, it was just kind of, I left the world behind of Post Road, and I was just going through the winding forest, and all of a sudden this massive home, almost out of a Stephen King Museum uh, picture, came in front of me, and I never thought about going back down, but that would be a great slide. Oh, it is. It's wonderful. Especially if you didn't have to walk back up. Well, that, yeah, that was an added bonus. <laughs> but uh, back then, I mean, I did walk to school. It was... Uh, 
I was at the Quisset School, which is, was, was on Goodwin Street, and I walked to school and back, and my bus stop when I was going to high school and junior high was at the bottom of Crestwood Road, so that was not fun because that was an uphill hike back in the afternoon after you were good and tired from school. Yeah, we always prefer the downhills on the way home. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and Anne, what, what was your mom like? Well, my mother was kind of interesting because um, she grew up on the east side of Providence, and from a very young age, she liked to chase fire trucks. I mean, not like a dog barking at them, but she loved to go to fires. And once she had graduated um, from school, she actually got really involved and built her own fire truck to protect the property, and she formed her own fire department and was the first woman member of the International Association of Fire Chiefs and the first fire chief in the world. And she started the department to protect the family property, which I think Scott or Paul mentioned it was 500 acres originally, which is true. A lot of it woodlands, and at that point, all of Wallach um, and East Greenwich were volunteer departments, so there was no paid firefighters or just whoever was available to go to a fire when the truck rolled. So she formed her own department, and then she became very involved in fighting forest fires around Rhode Island. Um, her truck and her men and she actually saved a group of firefighters that were surrounded by a forest fire by driving through the flames into the center and getting them on her truck and getting them out. And then she also decided she wanted to learn to fly and ended up having her own plane for a few years, which she used a lot because she became the Southern Rhode Island Forest Fire Warden, so she would do a lot of flying around the state um, during the fire seasons. Uh, she's really given a lot back to the, the city and the state. That's, that's really yeah. amazing. She did a lot of teaching for the Red Cross, too, um, teaching life-saving. She and her friend Lily May, who lived down in the Chippenoxit section of uh, Quisit, which is right across Post Road on the east side of Post Road just below us, um, she and Lily May organized the first Red Cross motor corps in Rhode Island. And during the 1938 hurricane, my mother was very involved. She did a lot of flying for the Red Cross to locate the bodies that had been lost in the hurricane along the South Shore. Wow, a lot of firsts there for sure. And, and I know, our, or Paul, we had talked about a little bit uh, in our first meeting. Can you kind of go over a little bit about the agricultural center on the property? Well, the Agricultural Center has really been uh, a dream of Anne's for a number of years. Uh, I think the concern on the part of the family is that the agricultural traditions with ever-increasing suburbanization have been lost to the younger generations. And it's sort of um, a, a bit of a phenomenon when a, when a, a, a scallop rake or, or quahogger tongs uh, show up in a garage. And uh, that's just for the bay, but in terms of working the soil, uh, plows and uh, goat harnesses, for example, um, are an object of great curiosity. So Anne has been making quite an effort to gather together from private collections and generous donors uh, representative tools that might have been used in Warwick before the Second World War. And she's been greatly uh, be aided in that by Henry Brown um, here in, in Warwick. 
and we have great plans to show in the very near future most of these implements in what had been a, a contemporary uh, a barn uh, which will lend itself very well. And uh, I would let Anne speak a little bit more on, on, on the breadth of the collection. But what's exciting, Scott, is that uh, the museum itself in Clouds Hill is not a question of what was, it is very much what is. It's a collection that isn't static. It continues to grow in relevant chapters. And Anne would probably like to say something about the, uh, some of the more interesting tools. Yeah, we've been very fortunate. There was a lot of stuff in existence on the place already because everybody in the family was a pack rat and nobody threw anything out. So almost everything is there from the time that the house was built right on up to the present. Uh, I have a special passion for trying to preserve the history of, the, of rural Rhode Island because, of course, all of Rhode Island was rural at one point, but I think we're really losing um, a lot of knowledge of what did exist. Um, for instance, I bet a lot of people don't know that in the 1840s and 50s, Warwick was the seventh largest producer of vegetables in Rhode Island in market gardens. Anyway, I have become very interested in collecting old agricultural tools, and fortunately, our director emeritus from our board, Henry A. L. Brown, who is the Warwick City historian, has a wonderful collection of agricultural tools and is kind of whetting my interest by periodically donating something new and wonderful for our agricultural collection. We have a beautiful little incubator for um, hatching chicken eggs, which was used on his family farm, Spring Green Farm, because they produced a lot of poultry commercially. Um, I have a very nice chicken catcher, and I'll bet you don't know what a chicken catcher is, but it's a wooden handle with a metal rod on it that curves into a hook at the end, and you simply sneak up on the chicken and grab him by the leg. And we have all kinds of fun things like that. And in the Rocky movie, he chased a chicken around. It was, uh, he should have had a chicken catcher. Absolutely. <laughs> and when I came up the drive, I looked back, and it was all trees, but I imagine back in the day before the trees had grown up and they were just small saplings, that you could see the bay. And would you typically have yachts parked outside? Well, the whole family was interested in boating, um, my great-uncle, I'm sorry, my mother's great-uncle, my great-great-uncle, um, John Whipple Slater, had, at the time it was built, the largest steam yacht in the world, privately owned. It was 187 feet. It was called the Sagamore. And in fact, it was rented by J.P. Morgan a couple of summers when he wasn't using it. And periodically, he would come in and tie up off the Quisset shore and take a launch ashore to the dock that was down in front of our house and come up and visit the family. And it's interesting because people don't realize the size of some of the yachts that used to come into East Greenwich on a regular basis. The Russells, who owned Goddard Park, had a 150-foot yacht that tied up between the East Greenwich boat ramp and the Goddard Park boat ramp in an area of the cove now that is silted up so badly you probably couldn't get something that size anywhere near it. And then further down the cove um, in the area of the East Greenwich Yacht Club, there was another over 150-foot yacht that was moored there permanently. So things have really changed. 
Uh, we have a lot of things from the Sagamore. We have all of this. Uh, we have the saluting cannon. We have all of the flags, the signal flags, and also all of the flags of the countries that the Sagamore visited because it was built to take the family on a round-the-world trip. So we periodically will do um, some fundraising dinners, and one of our favorite ones to do is dinner on the after deck of the Sagamore, which takes place on the porch at Clouds Hill. And everything about the dinner revolves around where the Sagamore would go. We have copies of newspaper clippings from the day, which announced where the Sagamore was going, what it was doing. And I have to admit that my great uncle, or great great uncle, John Whipple Slater, liked his um, libations, shall we say, and we think it's very appropriate because he had it thoroughly stopped with, stocked with liquors at all times, but the Sagamore ended its career chasing rum runners for the Canadian government <laughs> until it was burned at the dock in Halifax in 1923. <laughs> well, a fitting end for uh, irony, I guess. Poetic justice. Yeah. And uh, as you, meant the f you mentioned the fundraising uh, Paul, what type of restoration projects are you planning in the state? Well, it's very exciting because other than the traditional need to uh, secure the envelope of the building, that is to say the dormer windows on the third floor, the uh, actual roof, uh, the importance of the interior really lies in its unique painted decoration. That is to say that the walls and the ceiling were elaborately painted in oil paints and distemper in 1873-1874 by a Boston decorating firm that assisted the uh, the uh, furniture supplier I mentioned previously, Doan Honeywell. And that firm's name was uh, William J. McPherson. And McPherson was working a, a good deal uh, in prominent states throughout the country. Uh, today, obviously, there's a good deal of buildup of soil, of, of dust, of coal residue, not coal residue as much as, as residue from the fireplaces over the years. And uh, the, the, the vibrant colors, obviously, of a uh, century and a half ago have been lost. So we're embarking on a major restoration campaign where destabilized plaster cornices will be restored. Uh, the original colors will be exposed and stabilized. A little bit of in-painting where there are cracks or areas of loss will take place. And we're doing this with a, a firm based in Connecticut uh, called John Canning & Company, uh, who have done uh, such prominent landmarks as Trinity Church Boston. So we're very hopeful that this will really uh, open up and be a, a revealing uh, look into what the original intent of the owners and their decorative team was back in the uh, late 19th century. And a few of the pieces that you've shown me that, that you've tested on, it, it brings from the period past right to the present. Uh, what, what was amazing to look at is just beyond amazing when you see the the true color from the original days. True, and as part of this prospect, as part of this overall project, we hope also to restore some of the lighting. It's curious that used as a summer house when uh, electricity was finally a municipal source of electricity was available, uh, the family chose to keep the old gas fixtures um, unwired. So we're going to wire them now, and once the wall and ceiling paintings are 
cleaned, you'll be able to see the effect of the metallic uh, leaf, the gold leaf, for example, in the ceilings, bouncing back the light, and you'll have a much more accurate idea of what the original uh, interiors uh, were intended to be, and I think it'll be quite the, uh, quite the eye-opener. Wow. And I'm looking forward to that. Uh, folks, if you'd, you remember, visiting Cloud 2 Museum, uh, not only can you see the past, but you can also help with some of the fundraising that they do to, to really bring the past back into the future. And it's a definitely a, a great organization. Again, cloudshill.org, uh, there's information there about to, uh, how to donate. Uh, one of the programs that, that you folks run is the Point of Light program, and I thought we might touch on that for a moment. That's great. I'd like to talk about that. We're very proud to have been working since about 2010 with at least eight or nine different special needs organizations in Rhode Island. In fact, if you come for Christmas, you will see four or five Christmas trees decorated by four or five of the different programs that we work with on a regular basis. But uh, Wayne Cabral, who is our Director of Operations, has worked for years with the Boys Club and is, has been very involved with the special needs groups such as um, Perspectives, Avatar, the Warwick Transition Program, the West Bay Collaborative, Spurwink, and a couple of others. And we have had many, many uh, youngsters uh, between the ages of 16 and 23 coming to the house and learning basic landscaping skills in the hopes that they'll be able to go out into the community and become productive adults working outdoors. They love coming to Clouds Hill because every one of them has said that Clouds Hill is so calm. I have to echo that. It's one of the first things I said to you when I had finished the tour, that it is so calming and inviting just emotionally walking through there. And um, and is there anything else that we wanted to touch? We have a few minutes left. Well, we're always looking for volunteers. We're always, obviously, we're always looking for donations because um, other we only have one paid staff member, Everybody else is a volunteer, and we can always use help, particularly with uh, landscaping. Uh, we'd love to find a grant writer who would be willing to donate some time to us, uh, people in the trades that would be willing to help, and we're always looking for docents, people that enjoy talking to people and would like to take them around the house. We promise we'll tell you the stories so that you'll be able to speak as if you lived here. <laughs> Um, you've done a fantastic job uh, getting Paul up to speed, and, and I'm sure everyone that is interested, please reach out to Clouds Hill at cloudshill.org. Their phone number is 401-884-9490. If you're interested in contacting them for any donations for museum tours, uh, please do. It's a fantastic property, and uh, Warwick Life highly encourages you to do so. Thank you to Ann and Paul for spending some time with our audience today and sharing insights on Warwick life. It's a great time to be in Warwick, and for that, those not living the Warwick life, come pay us a visit, come visit Clouds Hill, and see what we all have to offer. That wraps up another edition of Warwick Life on Warwick Radio. If you have any comments, content suggestions, or questions, drop us a line at warwicklife at gmail.com. 
Thank you to Tester Manuelian for our lead-in in closing music. She's a music major with an incredible career ahead of her. Lastly, don't forget to check out Warwick Center for the Arts at warwickcfa.org. See you next time. You're listening to Warwick Radio Online. The voice of Warwick, Rhode Island.